This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, housing crunch. Why is there such an imbalance between our ability to build new homes and invite new residents to BC? And we look into the continued push by real estate firms to buy low-income single-room occupancy buildings. Plus, Campbell River becomes the latest community to pass a public drug consumption ban. We look at the impact drug use is having on the island community. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on Campbell River as they become the just the latest community to ban uh, public drug use in public spaces. Uh, the move means drug consumption is prohibited within 15 meters of playgrounds, sports fields, water parks, tennis courts, and bus shelters. This is the second attempt at a bylaw. The first included a fine of $200. That was legally challenged by the Pivot Legal Society. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Kermit Dahl, the mayor of Campbell River. Mr. Dahl, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It's good to be here. Uh, how much of a challenge was it uh, to uh, push through the public drug consumption ban? Other municipalities have been talking about it. A few have passed it. Talk to me a little bit about your community's uh, journey to get to this point. Uh, we're, we really view it as pushing it through, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, we we did run into some. Uh, difficulties along the way and uh, we had to rescind the first one and then reword it a little bit to get something that was a little bit more amicable for island health but ultimately we we're just trying to you know give our our, our bylaw and RCMP the opportunity to have some tools to try to deal with some of the uh, activities in our downtown core. I don't think Campbell River is any different than any, probably any other community in BC right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're just trying to balance safety and, and lawlessness. What have you been seeing over the past year, year and a half in regards to you getting to this point of having to deal, wanting to deal with this through this bylaw. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. This doesn't go back a year and a half. This only goes back to January. You know, it it really came about when the decriminalization uh, came into place in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Before that, we <clears throat> there was no need for it because the simple possession of these illicit drugs kept the uh, the open consumption down but when uh, when decriminalization happened then there was nothing behind that to stop it from being open open consumption anywhere and we were seeing it quite a bit in our downtown core you know and, and since december we've seen the the violence escalate in Campbell River exponentially so i think it's it's been pretty widely covered that we just had a, a stabbing here on Friday evening, and that was the fifth stabbing in in two months, like significant stabbing that was 
enough to get the attention of media. Uh, and what do you think is driving it? Is it is it, is it this uh, this controversial decision by the federal government to decriminalize these drugs, or do you think there's something deeper in regards to dealing with mental health and addiction uh, in your community, is, or is, do you, is it fundamentally that particular law that was changed that is having this effect? Having that change without having the infrastructure to support the needs of the people suffering, I think is what, you know, has made this uh, culminate in such a huge way of lawlessness in our communities. There, There is no treatment beds for people to, be, to go to. You know, there's no detox centers to go to. None of those pieces are in place. There's no secondary housing, no support. So, you know, in, in my opinion, we, the province did the easy stuff and uh, the complex and expensive things like developing recovery centers and detox beds and supportive housing, those pieces were ignored. Uh, in, in your community or in your region, uh, you were saying there's not that supportive housing isn't there, the the detox isn't there. Has there been any conversation of uh, providing those services in the next little while, or the short or even medium term that something like that could be built? Well, I haven't heard of anything, you know, that's in the plans for the the short term. I mean, the city is now working with a table of partners to try to find quick solutions. I'm not sure that that should have been the city's job to have to figure this out. We didn't create this. And we definitely, the way that taxes are structured, we don't have the funding for it. But we're, we're definitely trying to work with uh, our First Nations in Campbell River and uh, Island Health, D.C. Housing, Know, a, a large group to try and find some solutions to the, the problems that we're having down here. Uh, do you see more communities doing what your community did in regards to passing these uh, public drug consumption bans or these bylaws uh, prohibiting consumption uh, of drugs, hard drugs, uh, uh, heading in that direction? I know there's been talk of it and many, uh, many are wanting to, some have. Do you see more communities doing what you just did? I would see the majority of communities doing what we did unless the province comes out and makes uh, provincial regulations around it to save the municipalities from having to do it. If, if there's one thing you could say to Premier Eby, what would you want to say to him today in regards to this issue uh, on behalf of your community and many others that are dealing with this issue? And, and not just the, the, the drug consumption, but the broader issues of treatment centers and detox. What would you want to say to him? Those are the things that we need. We, we need the detox beds. We need the treatment centers. We need the secondary supportive housing. And, and immediately we need more uh, supportive uh, OPS sites. Mayor Dahl, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jazz. I really appreciate your time. 
Now, uh, earlier this week, uh, we told you about a vote that actually uh, occurred last week, uh, last Friday, in fact, uh, where the Metro Vancouver board voted 84-50 in support of accelerating a faster move away from fossil fuels. Now, the original recommendations were advocated by the city of Richmond. Now, the vote includes asking the BC government to enact legislation to speed up the transition away from natural gas. Now, Fortis, BC, asked Metro Vancouver to reject recommendations for a quicker move away from fossil fuels, arguing, of course, the transition takes time, and natural gas is part of that transition. Uh, The move was also not supported by various business associations who also wrote in, uh, including the Metro Vancouver Board of Trade. Now, earlier this week, uh, Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody was on this show and asked, and we asked him why local government should focus on natural gas and climate change broadly when some would argue climate change policy should be left to senior levels of government. Here's his response. I think it's the responsibility of all the uh, parties uh, in government, whether you're at the local, provincial, or federal level. Uh, At the Metro Vancouver level, uh, we have the Climate 2050 Energy Roadmap, and really what we're advocating here is to follow that roadmap but do it at a quicker pace. Uh, and that is Malcolm Brody, the mayor of Richmond. Of course, he voted uh, as part of the Metro Vancouver board uh, last Friday on the issue. Well, joining us now to talk about the issue is Ian Tostenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Uh, good afternoon, Ian. Hey, Jess. So, I don't usually call in the buzz line, but I, I listened to a segment yesterday and I sort, of, I, I sort of thought, you know what, we've got to weigh in here because, you know, our, our industry has such a vested interest, as you, as you probably can imagine, in natural mm. gas. And we've been down this road once before with the city of Vancouver under the, the former mayor, where it almost became a, ban, a complete ban on natural gas. So here we are again, uh, you know, in a circular argument. And um, so here we go. Yeah. What was interesting, uh, it was funny, I was driving home uh, after last Friday's show and I got a call uh, from a source of mine saying, "This, did you hear about this vote? I said, no. And it turns out there's no reporter covering the vote, by the way. There was an article written a few days prior in advance of the vote, but uh, I guess everybody's busy covering forest fires, whatever it may be, but nobody actually covered the vote. So uh, we got to it this week on the show and I, and I just didn't want to do one segment. I want to keep going back to it because it is a broader mm-hmm. conversation. I think all of us are concerned about climate change, but in your industries, for your industry here i mean uh, natural gas is part of um, most kitchens uh, what kind of impact would happen if they ban natural gas we're in the middle of doing a study right now a uh, rather expensive study i would imagine but we're taking a, an actual restaurant mm-hmm. on main street we're going to convert it from it's an existing gas restaurant in get this in a city of vancouver building hmm. and um, we're going to uh, do a theoretical conversion of that restaurant to electricity um we haven't got to the end game yet on this, but and it's going to take a couple of months just to do all the. So here's what: the, 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 if you were actually a restaurant needing to convert to electricity, if in fact that was even practical, you'd have to go through the same things. You need permits, you need engineering drawings, you need to source your equipment, you need to upgrade, you know, all your electrical. What we're finding out already is that we probably couldn't get enough electrical load, it gets kind of technical, into the building to begin with, even to do it. Mm -hmm. But actually to do it, by the time it's all said and done, it's probably going to be anywhere from forty dollars to $70,000. So that's not going to be on for any restaurant uh, to do that, Um, apart from the fact that, you know, cooking with electricity, electricity, um, you know, in a lot of cases, induction, I suppose, uh, isn't practical. I mean, natural gas gives you instant heat, instant fire, 
And I remember someone telling me in an ethnic restaurant that if they had to use electricity, mm-hmm. they'd have to keep the, the, uh, the, the stoves on full blast all day long so they have access to that heat, instant heat. Of course, now you've got – this is where these policies drive me crazy because no one thinks about this. Now you've got electricity burning, you know, full on you know, for 12 hours a day so that the cooks and chefs can access um, that heat. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you're going to cause other problems. So, you know, our biggest problem here is that, we, you know, we, need, we don't need a whole bunch of different municipalities weighing in on, hey, let's jump on the bandwagon here. No one has even discussed this with us, uh, you know, as an industry and engaged us to, to try to be part of the solution and, uh, and or the practicality of whether or not a restaurant can even cook uh, on electricity. So, you know, we're blindly going down. Metro Vancouver's made this vote, and we find out about it. In fact, I went to their website today, mm-hmm. and I, what I heard about natural gas was they've extended natural gas buses because they don't have enough charging stations to go electric. So now they're sort of going, okay, but you're going to ban natural gas for everybody else. The other issue I'll say um, is that in Vancouver, they're looking at banning natural gas, Jazz, in new builds. Yep. And so uh, that would mean that uh, Jazz Joe Hall could not put, would likely not put a restaurant in that new development where we see a lot of new restaurants developing uh, because you don't have access to gas. So effectively, you're sort of killing the industry. So uh, apart from all the ethnic considerations in our industry, um, you know, a lot of, you know, I think about maybe f- almost 49% of the restaurants in Metro Vancouver are ethnic restaurants, w- which rely on open gas cooking. That's how they do it. So, you know, it really needs a broader discussion and, and a more inclusive discussion. I think it's a bit, it's a, it's a sad state when Metro Vancouver just sort of vote and, and don't take into, into account these considerations. If you're just joining us, our guest is Ian Tostenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. We're talking about a vote uh, that was held last Friday. The Metro Vancouver Board voted 84-50 in support of accelerating a faster move away from fossil fuels. Uh, it was an original recommendation that was advocated by the City of Richmond, and the vote includes asking the BC government to enact legislation to speed up the transition away from uh, natural gas. Now, many people have said, look, you only have to look at the wildfires and what this world is going through when it comes to climate change, it's the right thing to do. Others have said, leave the climate change uh, file to senior levels of government, Ottawa and Victoria, where you can have uh, an impact. Give me a call on the open line. I want to hear from you. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to Brad and Langley. Hi, Brad. Hi, Jazz. Hi, Ian. It's Brad McLeod here with Sea Lovers Fish and Chips. Hi, Brad. Hey, buddy. Hi. When I heard you two talking, I just had to call in on this. Um it just it's impossible in the restaurant industry i think we're going to switch for right now with the technology out there and switch to electricity there isn't enough power on our grids to be able to handle what the restaurants would draw we did a quick synopsis uh the other day when we first heard this talking mm-hmm. talked to an electrical contractor does our work besides cost of the cost of equipment for the restaurant can buy an all new equipment because everything has to be new to go to electric and then power consumption uh, with the load with us with deep fryers, you would be upwards of 150,000 minimum, if not 200,000. And BC Hydro probably doesn't even have the power to give us in most of our locations. I don't know any small business who can handle that kind of that kind of outlay of cash, right? And, and the other part is hydro. There's there's not our power grid is not designed for this. Like you're eliminating, and then when you've got problems in winter time with 
electricity or whatever, like the heat load that we need in the Okanagan and places like that, it just it doesn't work. No, and, and, and uh, I think you raise a very good point. We've got to remind ourselves that the amount of EVs that we're um, uh, selling now, even with Site C coming on, which I think is about 10 or 15% of the province's power, once it comes on, there's already talk that we may need one or two more uh, Site Cs just to stay up with what's going on. So you're absolutely right in regards to just the, the, the power uh, consumption and what we can handle so far in this province. So Brad, I really appreciate your call. Thank you for reaching out. Uh, let's go to Mike in Vernon. Hi, Mike. Hey, good afternoon, Jazz. Yeah, that was a really good point that uh, the previous caller brought up about the electrical grid, electricity, electrical grid with uh, with cars, with buses, with everything else trying to draw power off the grid and then trying to switch our houses all over to electrical and to heat pump. Um, <laughs> we're going to run out. We're going to be worse than California. Um, but on another note, using the gas and electricity um, for cooking, mm-hmm. uh, there's a ski area up here in the Okanagan that hosts uh, farm workers from Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And they're used to cooking on gas, and they cook a lot of their, they, they cook these really cool flatbread things that they have to cook over high heat really quickly. And that's how they do it, right? Well, mm-hmm. they were doing it over, over uh, electricity, but they were having all sorts of problems with uh, being able to control the heat and stuff quickly um, and uh, smoke alarms going off and everything else in these accommodations that they were in. What they wound up doing was putting in um, a temporary gas kitchen for them to use. And uh, basically a shipping container uh, with a couple of big uh, commercial gas ranges in it for them to use. And uh, it just goes to prove that it won't work. It's just not going to work for a lot of, of the cooking that is done in this province. We have such a diverse um, style of cooking done, mm-hmm. so much ethnic food, that it just won't work. Yeah. And uh, I, I just I don't know why, Jazz, they have to come up with these little silly ideas that in the grand scheme of things are really not going to make much of a difference. There's far bigger ways of controlling how much um, CO2 we're allowing in the atmosphere than worrying about a cooking stove. Yeah. Mike, I really appreciate your call. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it goes back to, I think, what you were saying, Ian, um, you know, at the end of the day, there are you know policies can be aspirational, and I'm I'm all for that. That's all well and good, but if they're not grounded in the realities of the needs of everyday people and industry, it's rather irrelevant. It sounds wonderful to say, look, we had a big vote, and as the mayor Brody said at the top of our our conversation, we have a roadmap. Well, <laughs> the roadmap doesn't really deal with the realities of your industry, does it? No, it doesn't. And the industry is is so impactful on an environmental side. I mean, we use a lot of water, so we work on those sort of things. And we use, you know, we have we, we generate a lot of uh, waste, and we work on that as well too. Like we we're very conscious of that because we need to set an example for the public. But you know, if you want change, and I I believe this in my heart, then we we need to have the broad discussion and find ways and common sense. Like you know, Brad and, and the caller from Vernon, that that's common sense. And, and I know Brad at Sea Lovers Fish and Chips, mm-hmm. and uh, he came from a trade a trade before he got in the restaurant business. And he's wonderful. He's a wonderful operator. He knows his stuff, and what he said is so true. Mm-hmm. But you know, leaving an industry out. And, and I think the caller in Vernon makes a good point. There's other ways that we could make a bigger impact collectively. But what we're doing now is we're back to a divisive 
uh, a, a situation right now where municipalities are making decisions and Metro Vancouver is making decisions and the province is making decisions. And for our industry right now, what it doesn't need is more uncertainty. It needs to have a solid footing to regain itself and its confidence in the future. So uh, it's really unfortunate, but we're going to just keep pushing on this and and see. Um, but, you know, Brad raises another interesting point, too, is that, you know, even though you could do a conversion and it might be six figures to do that conversion, um, it probably doesn't work. And it doesn't work. And I think it's very disrespectful, Jazz, to the the ethnicity of British Columbia to say, you know what? You may not cook one day with gas and without any discussion. I think that's that's wrong, and I think it's wrong for our sector because, as I said earlier, the diversity in our, in our industry is 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 amazing and it's it's refreshing. Ian, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Oh. Thanks for having me on. Sign up to the Economist for in-depth, curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, it's a familiar sight around the world, a teenager glued to their cell phone and their parents probably telling them to put it down. I think that that scene plays out anywhere in the world these days. But for young people in China, uh, they may have that choice taken away from them under new rules that would limit screen time to a maximum of two hours a day for people under the age of 18. There's even stricter rules if kids are younger. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about these new internet rules uh, for kids in China is Andy Burr, tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Good afternoon, Andy. Hi, Jazz. Hi. So tell me, I know, look, generally we don't look to China, uh, a one-party totalitarian state, uh, for rules and regulations on a lot of issues. But I thought this one was rather interesting. It's worth uh, having a conversation about. Now, this is proposed, uh, I believe, yesterday uh, for the first time. Uh, It's two hours a day for people under the age of 18. And I guess when their kids are younger, it's even going to be less than that in regards to the screen time. That's correct. And this is coming from the Cyberspace Administration of China. It's the national internet regular, uh, regulator for China and censor. And it was established 10 years ago in 2013. And its initial mandate, Jazz, was to regulate online content. But 10 years later, they're, they're seeing internet addiction and especially amongst youth and gaming addiction. So this, this regulatory body is getting more and more power. They're actually expanding their regulatory scope. So every internet company in China is scared of this body because of the measures that they're doing. And as you mentioned, they are pretty much going to implement new modes that are going to restrict the internet access for kids under 18 and limit how much internet they can do. And also, and this is the crazy part of this new regulation, 
They're banning any kid from, from accessing the internet from 10, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So essentially when they should be sleeping, the, the <laughs> internet regulatory body of China is going to make sure the kids are sleeping and not on their smartphones in their bedroom. So the, the rules, uh, from what I can tell, are designed to, um, to prevent uh, kids, especially teenagers, from getting addicted to the internet. So uh, under the rules, uh, for, uh, I guess the government and, and through these companies and, and these apps, they want to limit screen time on mobile devices to 40 minutes a day for kids under 8, one hour for those aged 8 to 16, and two hours for those above that age. So I'm guessing 16 to, to, to 18. Is that technically possible? I know it's still China, but is that technically possible? Well, if there's any country that can probably pull this off, it's going to be China. Because since 2017, if you wanted to join any social media profile in China, you had to use your actual ID. You had to provide identification um, to, to access these social media profiles. And they're doing the same with children. And what this new regulation is trying to do, Jazz, is they're trying to make the actual internet platforms use big data and AI to find kids who are trying to circumvent these these new rules and then to identify them and police them. So they're trying to get the actual platforms. Could you imagine the, the Canadian government telling Meta you have to find kids that are, are accessing Instagram that shouldn't be and, and report them to us? You know, that's essentially what China is trying to do here. And that's what I meant by this regulatory body really putting the stamp on, on their power against these uh, platforms in China. And there's really nothing they can do about it. They are going to follow um, what the, the mandate that comes from the Chinese government. And in this case, I, I'm, I'm very interested to see how the kids respond because one option is the parents can void that. The parents can actually allow the kids to game if they want to. So I imagine all these Chinese kids are going to be... Uh, you know, trying to be on the good side of their parents to, to be able to uh, continue gaming with these regulations going effect. Now, uh, I know when I lived in China, we would all use a, a VPN, a virtual private network to get past the great firewall of China. Uh, if you were had a VPN, would you, you'd be able to get around all of this, I'm assuming. I don't think so. Not in China, because you have to authenticate your identity to get onto any of these platforms. And another thing that they're doing with these new measures, Jazz, mm -hmm. is any kid that's under 16, even if you are playing, say, during your allowed time, you're not allowed to do any live streaming. You're not allowed to give these virtual tokens or gifts or communicate with these uh, content creators. So they're really trying to limit it. And they're also telling the platforms, Jazz, to start, you know, putting positive content that, that really reflects the socialist values of China, more science, education, technology content. So they want them to actually control the algorithm and feed these kids when they're allowed to be on their internet, feed them positive content rather than just crazy dance crazes and stuff like that that we see here in North America. So, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, we here in the West and democracies are never going to follow what China is doing in, in, in regards to what they're trying, this specific policy. But uh, recently we did a segment on this show where uh, there were 200 school districts in the U.S. Uh, that got together to have hired lawyers and now suing big tech, those especially who run social media firms like Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, 
um, and Twitter uh, because kids, A, are being distracted. In some cases, there's bullying because of social media. And there are other school districts um, that are now getting together for another lawsuit, a similar type of lawsuit, but even more school districts, in this case, 500 who want to sue. Different governments, different perspective to the world, that I understand. But it does speak to an underlying frustration with big tech, especially social media companies, to A, the distractive nature, the addiction to the internet, uh, and just the mental health of children. Yeah, and for one, we can tell that big tech really doesn't care about the mental health of kids because if they did, they would have been proactive. But these are their potential future customers. So they're trying to get them onto these platforms early on. They're trying to get them to communicate, say, through Instagram chats and and what, what have you. And then they want to keep them as lifelong customers. And they collect data on these children the whole time that they're doing this. So they know what these kids like. They know what kind of videos that they're going to watch. And they just keep feeding it. And that's why TikTok is like, got to have the most powerful algorithm out there out of all the different social media platforms. But, you know, the kids love it. I don't blame them because they're, they're still young. They like Even adults get addicted to social media and the internet. Can you imagine being a 14 or 15-year-old? Like, I would never survive in this day and age with the algorithm. How are you going to beat an algorithm that understands you better than you know yourself? And that's the problem. And I, I just hope that if it's not governments, whether it's parents, I just hope, Jazz, one day being on social media is not cool amongst kids. And I don't know what it's going to take for that to happen. But kids like going an analog life where they're trying to you know ditch the smartphone, get these dumb phones, and just try to be present. Because it bugs me all the time, Jazz. I was just d- walking the other day and I saw a 12-year-old girl walking her dog. Mm-hmm. She's got a leash in one hand and her smartphone in the other hand. She's completely out of touch of her environment. And it just bugs me. And I can't unsee it now everywhere <laughs> I go. I see people walking their dog. Looking yeah. at their smartphone. Yeah, and you know what? Even when we were talking about you know doing this segment today, I go, well, there's nothing to be learned from the Chinese government. But at the same time, they are at least addressing it in their own way, which you know I wouldn't agree with. But the core issue is the same, whether it's China or here in Canada, is this addiction to social media uh, and how we plan to somehow control these big tech firms that have gotten way too big and uh, in some cases are not accountable uh, to citizens and to the broader society. So it's a, it's a very interesting conversation. Andy, thank Thank you, as always, my friend. Thanks, Jazz. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Today, uh, I came across a story uh, on Glacier Media written by reporter Mike Howell. Uh, it focuses on a, a, a hotel called the, the Lotus Hotel in the 400 block of Abbott Street. Uh, it's owned by a Toronto-based uh, real estate investment firm. Uh, and uh, it houses uh, many low-income tenants. Uh, they live in uh, basically a single-room occupancy 
uh, hotel there. And uh, as you know, uh, there aren't many single-room occupancy hotel rooms. Uh, they, over the years, uh, have uh, been bought, the, the various properties, and it pushes a lot of folks uh, away. And it's many cases, they are the only affordable housing for a lot of residents here uh, in and around uh, downtown Vancouver. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this particular hotel is Mike Howell, a reporter with Glacier Media's uh, Central Team. Mike, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Jess. So let's talk a little bit about the Lotus Hotel. Tell me about the hotel itself. Uh, well, it's, it was built way back uh, 1913. It's uh, about 109 units. Um, uh, listeners may know it uh, as a you know, fairly prominent hotel uh, kind of on the edge of Gastown, just a block from Hastings at Pender and Abbott there. Um, and as I say, it's been there for a long time, and it's served a lot of people uh, for many, many years, um, you know, SROs are seen as a last resort of housing before someone uh, ends up on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, it's uh, it's changing in, in terms of uh, who lives there. Um, now, this particular uh, Toronto real estate investment firm, I think it's called Forum Asset Management, uh, in your story, you tell us that uh, they've been contacting residents, long-time residents, low-income tenants about potentially moving out. Yeah, so what got me onto the story is I, I talked uh, to one tenant there, then another tenant, then another tenant. Uh, there were other tenants uh, who, who were afraid to go on record, but uh, there was a pattern there, and they were concerned that they were repeatedly being asked uh, whether it was a knock at the door, a text message, an email about um, a potential buyout um, saying, hey, you guys want to move, uh, we'll give you some money, send you on your way. Uh, and what are they paying on average in rent, some of these residents? Uh, well, the residents I spoke to, um, not to get into specifics, but 650 uh, less, kind of between, say, 550 and 650 of the tenants that I spoke to. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were saying the some of these SROs have already been, uh, uh, these rooms have been converted in that building? Yeah, if you look on the property management site, the property manager property manager for um, the owner, you will see that they have listings there for at least thirteen um, renovated suites in that very same building, and they range from seventeen hundred to nineteen ninety five now. And so the significant difference, a lot more than $650 these low-income residents are paying. So if somebody moves out, they can convert them, they can fix them up, refurbish them, yeah. and then collect a significant amount of rent there, so up to $1,900 per month. Now, how big are yeah. these, these, these suites? They're, on average, kind of 10 by 10 rooms. So that, that, so that's, uh, you know, maybe, uh, what, about 100, 200 square feet? Yeah, I mean, they're well. These ones listed on um, the property manager's uh, website. They range from 142 to 172 square feet. And the people who would pay the the seventeen, eighteen, nineteen hundred a month. So, there, are they full time residents? Or are they just coming in for a week at a time? Like it, it's it, it's just short term rentals. No, no, I believe you you have to sign a, a one year lease. And, um, you know, the website, Forum's website says um, it, it primarily caters to urban professionals and students. So some of them are paying $1,800 per month for 
two square foot uh, suite or micro suite. Yeah, and that's uh, according to um, according to the owner. That's uh, deemed affordable in today's market. Wow, uh, how um, how prevalent is this for SROs? Are, are they are we losing a significant amount of them in the last little while? Yeah, we're um, you know there was a report that went before Vancouver City Council in May that um, you know uh, talked about this issue and talked about the fact that um, uh, rents in current uh, private SROs have um, gone up by about twenty one percent since twenty. 19 and um there's a real concern that you're losing more and more of the stock and therefore um you know people who can't afford uh low-income housing um you know end up on the street or end up out of town um you know and then it becomes an issue for you know emergency services homelessness services outreach etc mm-hmm. what needs to be done i mean you you've spent some time with the residents down they're obviously very concerned about being pushed out uh and i think in the story you were mentioning they were offered fifteen thousand dollars to move out it's a yeah. good, good chunk of change uh, to move but then where do you go is obviously the question what does the city need to do what does the city or the province need to do to protect these homes or at the very least make sure there are places for these people to live uh, to cater to the to, to their low income well the previous city council um actually moved a bunch of amendments to an sra bylaw where they wanted to tie the rent to the unit and not to the tenant and what i mean there jazz is that so if i'm living in a suite right now and i'm paying say 650 if i decide to leave under the previous council's uh, wish, they would want to rent that suite at the same price when you move in. But what's happening now is that when I move out at 650 if you want to move in, they're going to renovate it and charge you $1,900 to move into that same suite. Uh, you know, it'll be maybe furnished and renovated. But that, um, that amendment uh, was challenged by an owner of an SRO, and it was struck down uh, by the BC Supreme Court. So it's not in play anymore. The city has appealed it. The provincial government said after the BC uh, Rental Housing Task Force came out with recommendations that it would not support rent control. And it cited many concerns of building owners saying it's really expensive uh, to keep up with upgrades in today's um, uh, world of inflation and everything else costing more mm-hmm. since the pandemic was declared back in 2020. Well, it is a, a significant challenge for these residents. I'm glad uh, you were able to, to, to do this story because it's, it highlights the challenges for so many uh, in that area, but just around this city because we are losing valuable stock. And I'm still amazed at the, the $1,900 for a 172-square-foot uh, apartment. That is... a uh, Mind-boggling, yeah. it really is. It really is. Mike, uh, thank you. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, you know, I spoke again today to the landlord, and, you know, he, he thought my story was a little one-sided, and he wanted to emphasize that, you know, they've been involved in a lot of different projects, like student housing across the country, Winnipeg, Toronto. They were actually involved in some SRO uh, rehabilitation projects in the, the downtown east side, so he didn't want he just thought I was playing it like you know, uh, you know this uh, terrible, nasty Toronto landlord comes in and is booting people out. But 
he says that's not the case. But that's up to the readers and the listeners to decide. Yeah. And uh, I encourage them to go read the story. And there's another one that I just posted. <laughs> so. I, I appreciate that, Mike, and fabulous story uh, because it is a, a significant issue in this city. Mike, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Well, former President Donald Trump arrived for his appearance in a Washington, D.C. courtroom to answer charges that he used unlawful means in an attempt to subvert the results of the 2020 presidential election. He pled not guilty today. Here he is outside the courtroom after his appearance. It's a very sad day for America, and it was also very sad driving through Washington, D.C. and seeing the filth and the decay and all of the broken buildings and walls and the graffiti, this is not the place that I left. It's a very sad thing to see it. Uh, When you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. We can't let this happen in America. Thank you very much. That is former President Donald Trump. Joining me now to talk about um, Mr. Trump's appearance in court today is Jennifer Johnson, Global News Washington correspondent. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, What are you hearing, what are you seeing today with with this uh, arraignment? Well, Donald Trump has surrendered at a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. He was arrested and arraigned on the four federal charges that a grand jury handed down on Tuesday, basically charging him with conspiring to overturn the 2020 election. So it's unprecedented. It's a very historic day in Washington, D.C., never before seen in America that a United States president has basically been arrested, is being arraigned, and facing these very, very serious federal charges. How significant is this in the context of America's democracy? I know, um, you know, next year we're heading into a presidential election year. Uh, How significant is this? I guess it depends on who you talk to. Uh, Many people believe this, what Donald Trump allegedly did, um, resulting in the mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol and also talking to various state officials across the country to try and overturn the election, encouraging Mike Pence not to certify the election, declare it illegal, etc. Many people think that was a complete assault on our democracy. However, Donald Trump remains the clear front runner in the Republican race for the White House in 2024. Many, many of his supporters don't believe these charges. They think they're fake. They don't care what happened. They just believe in Donald Trump. So I guess that to answer your question, it depends on who you talk to. And you mentioned that he's still the clear front runner. Even after today, will this have any impact on his front runner status? Well, you know, it's amazing. It doesn't seem like anything really has an impact on Donald Trump's core support. And as I said, he is the clear front runner. The latest polls have him way ahead of the person who conceivably is in second place, Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida. But Donald Trump, this is the third time this year he has been charged uh, with a crime. Uh, He was charged with uh, violations of New York's uh, business and finance laws in paying hush money to adult film star actress Stormy Daniels. That was the the New York case. He's been charged by the Justice Department for 
37 plus counts uh, of violating the law by taking classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, given many, many chances to return this if the FBI decided not to. So he's been criminally charged in that case. And then, of course, we have today's charges. Um, it doesn't seem to dissuade his followers. Um, it's certainly going to be an interesting campaign season because the New York case and the Florida case are supposed to go to trial in March and May. The special counsel in this case was hoping for a speedy trial. I do believe that Donald Trump's lawyers will try to put the brakes on that. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if any of this changes the opinions. But let's be clear, Donald Trump is also was also found liable for raping a woman. And that did not change his polling numbers. Stepping away from his core supporters or even uh, Washington just for a moment and those who follow politics, the broad American public, is uh, are they exhausted of Mr. Trump or does he still have a hold on the broader, the broader population as well in your mind? I think many people are exhausted by Donald Trump. What is alarming to me as a reporter, just covering alarming is probably too strong a word, surprising to me mm-hmm. as a reporter is watching Donald Trump's competitors, uh, including Ron DeSantis, not go after him over these things. I mean, Ron DeSantis was on Fox News last night basically saying that Donald Trump can't get a fair trial in Washington, D.C., and he should be allowed to change of venue. They're going to ask for the state of West Virginia. But why would the guy in second place not go after the guy who's, you know, being criminally charged? And that's what's surprising to me. I mean, even Mike Pence, you know, yesterday said that, oh, he he was getting some bad advice from lawyers after the 2020 election. The fact that they're still defending this man is I, I have no explanation for that. If I was in a competition, I'd do anything I could to win that competition. And I don't know what's going on with, with the other people in this race. Mm-hmm. And today at this arraignment, uh, my understanding is he, he's, he is, has been fingerprinted. Would there be a mugshot or no mugshot? That is an interesting question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, he is certainly being f- fingerprinted and arraigned. Um, I don't know if there will be a mugshot. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's clear as going, you know, he'll plead not guilty. They're going to ask, as I said, for a change of venue. They don't believe they can get a fair trial in Washington, D.C., which is, you know, predominantly a Democratic, um, you know, area of the country. They're going to try to move this to a more conservative state. But, you know, you're talking about trying to get a jury of, you know, 12 people who can be impartial. It's a big city. I don't think a judge will grant that. Well, it's going to be very interesting to watch, not only over the next few weeks, but uh, over the many months heading into 2024, (laughs) that's for sure. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.